0: A very good evening to yet another Mongo Spaces on uh, Friday evening in uh, Nairobi. My name is Haida. I will be hosting the space today. And the topic uh, of discussion is Tech Talent Wars. We have a fantastic panel who will be uh, contributing to this topic. I see Faris is already in the room. I see Conrad is already in the room. We're expecting Wayne Gakur. He's a development community builder active in the Kenyan ecosystem. And we have Eunice Kariuki, who's ex-director at ICT Authority. She was managing innovation and partnerships. She's been doing a lot of work in the space. Also has worked in corporate, including working for Microsoft East Africa. So we'll be looking forward to get the submission. Conrad, I'll hand over to you. How about you introduce
1: yourself? Good evening. Thank you very much for the opportunity and for this space. I'll limit myself to the purposes of today. I'm a software engineer by training. Co-founded a fintech company called Innova Limited. That is uh, 12 years old to uh, this year. Uh, We have clients in uh, seven African countries and I pay about 35 salaries. It's been an exciting journey building the company, watching it grow and navigating the realities of running a company in Kenya and all its challenges. But uh, I think the fact that we are still around says a lot about our ability to withstand pressure. So I'm hoping to be having this conversation or other similar conversations 12 years from now uh, to celebrate our uh, living that long. I think that should serve by way of introduction.
0: Thanks for this, Conrad. I think we're going to have to dig a little bit deeper going back to the old days. I mean, you and Faris are veterans of the ecosystem, but we'll get to that later. So I'll quickly hand over to Faris to introduce himself.
2: Thanks. My name is Faris Karuki. I'm an entrepreneur. Currently running a uh, peer infrastructure, and what we do is help companies accelerate their journey to the cloud, consulting, building out products as we go along. I've been working in the tech space, in the virtualization space in particular for the last 17 years, so I've seen quite a number of ebbs and flows in this industry. Yeah, that's it.
0: Thanks for the brief introduction, Tafaris. I think your name uh, precedes yourself. You statistic of all the drama that the ecosystem has, especially on the entrepreneurship side, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that later. The topic of discussion today, obviously, is everyone's looking at the recent announcements and there's been a lot that has been covered. But I, I'd like us to shed light into how we got here and how Kenya ended up in this space. So, I've got some notes here and I'm just going to read out my thoughts and I'd like to get the comments from the panelists. So my notes start back all the way from 1995. I've kind of phased the different phases of growth in Kenya. So we have 1995 to 2005. That was pretty much the first decade of Kenya commercially being connected to the Internet. And of the ISP era. so this is where you saw africa online One ng a bunch of other small isps but the biggest then were those and then they gave way to infrastructure companies kdns and other infrastructure companies like your liquid telecoms later on and then in 1995 2005 you look at the talent a lot of the talent was either working in isps you had your random it technicians doing random stuff and they've been doing stuff since the 80s but isps Built capacity, network engineering. You know, some of the ISPs also doing very basic web hosting and web application development, website design, and whatnot. But we had a couple of design agencies that kind of grew up then, and particularly Three Mice. And if you look at the Three Mice Mafia, they most of them went on to carve out niches for themselves or contribute to how the industry then progressed. And then you have your 2005 to 2010 era which was mainly led by submarine cables landing and MNOs getting more investments and expanding. So you had two, two 2.5G data, 3G extending, and that led to a rise in BPO, we had our Innovation Hubs, your iHubs, Nylabs and whatnot. Very decent dev community then. And you had all these value addition companies really gaining foothold. Companies like Cellulant. And Cellulant came to fame by selling ringtots before they were able to expand outside Kenya on other businesses. And then you're seeing a lot of ERPs on the, and business process automation or digitization in one way or another, which also led to a huge growth in infrastructure. And also saw the mobile money kind of starting to take hold. So very early days of M-Pesa and just kind of moving money or value around before M-Pesa became the M-Pesa it it was today. And also during that time, you, you saw pockets of early VC. Companies got funded, the likes of Cellulant, the likes of Pesapal, and other companies that probably don't exist now. But there was a little bit of money coming in and tech was being seen as a viable pillar for the economy, but mostly being driven by MNOs and the big infrastructure companies. And then you have 2010 to 2015, which is pretty much where M-Pesa skyrocketed because it has a strong foothold in the economy. There's value addition elsewhere and people were kind of building on top of M-Pesa and one another. So you're seeing lots of fintechs, seeing bank integrations, uh, lots of logistics and logistics tech in one rudimentary way or Kenya's flavor of e-commerce and a growing community of VC and angels. And then, the last era which we are still in right now is the 2015 plus, and still being defined. But you saw gaming and betting, which was again built on top of MPESA, more fintech, getting into sacos and MFIs, insurance. You're seeing more activity on the local ecosystem, especially at the pre-seed and seed round. So, And this time around, a lot of the activity is being foreign driven, especially from money coming in from the US, a little bit from Europe, very little money coming in from local angels, but there is some participation of, of local angels. And it's much better now than what it was in 2005. Imagine raising money in 2005, you with the likes of Conrad and Faris. You were there during that time. It was almost impossible to raise money for tech. Then you're seeing Microsoft opening up ADC in in Kenya. Recently, Google, was an open secret that Google are going to open up. AWS made an announcement last year that they're going to be opening up in Kenya as well. And obviously a lot of talent is going into these entities. And then you have the likes of iColo and other infrastructure players kind of also playing a part in shaping the future of the Kenyan tech ecosystem in one way or another. and like both of you, Faris and Conrad, To comment on this, where we came from—from the early days of skunkworks and pre-skunkworks—to where we are now.
1: Right. uh, Well, uh, that is quite the intro. I think the the evolution of technology really has been inevitable. I don't want to date myself, but my my career in technology began when I was in high school, and I've never left it. So I've, uh, I've 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 watched from the days when internet was a novelty and was just for email to where now it is part of our day-to-day. In terms of my career, maybe if I talked a bit more about establish my bona fides a bit better. So I I worked in campus, and uh, the the, the company I worked for did websites. And as you rightly said, it was around the time of the three mice of the day. Technology in Kenya really was websites, and um, you could make a lot of money just making websites. But then as things became more and more advanced, the, the value that technology could bring to the table became more apparent. So a lot of value addition came around from that. So people began to diversify. And the company I, I, I worked for previously now went into supply chain. So it did a lot of projects for a lot of the our usual suspects, so on and so forth. So technology around automation and improvement of processes. So think of a typical problem where you are a supplier of sausages or beer or soda or tea. Uh, So managing that whole value chain from from the farmer to the collection of the products, to the production of the final products, to the delivery to the wholesalers and retailers and all the way to the end user. So technology around that uh, came about. But even then, Internet and connectivity was not ubiquitous. I remember our our first uh, solutions we built along those lines, even in town itself, you could not get network throughout town consistently. So we, um, we are forced to innovate around that. So we cannot assume that you are connected to your headquarters or back office. Uh, a lot of innovation came about in, of uh, now running, how do we run local on the device, running your solutions locally? Then now the next era, as you've rightly said now, is where now internet has become a lot more ubiquitous. Um, In the last government, the likes of the Kibaki government and the PS and demo did a lot of work around getting a a a lot of these cables to bring connectivity to Kenya. So bandwidth became cheap, bandwidth became ubiquitous, everybody has connectivity. So a whole bunch of other solutions uh, came around that, and we are still leveraging those. And now i on the cusp of another, where the cloud is also now bringing a lot more opportunities to us. So in terms of evolution, I think we are right on the cusp of it. And uh, it's, it's a bit exciting time in terms of those of us uh, who recognize that one man's problems, another man's opportunity. I'm quite excited about what the future will bring in terms of technology for us in Africa and in Kenya in particular.
0: Thanks for this, Conrad. I see Eunice and Wayne in the room, so I'll call upon Eunice to quickly introduce herself.
3: Good evening. Thank you. Uh, Sorry I popped in a bit late, some little challenge there. By name, I am Eunice Kariuki, immediate former ICT director for innovation, capacity development and partnerships at the ICT authority. It is about 22 months since I left the ICP authority voluntarily to adjust to changes in my life. I don't know how far I should stretch that introduction. Uh, maybe you can guide me a little bit more.
0: No, you can keep it as brief as possible. So what, what are you doing now and and what, what excites you about what's happening?
3: Right. I'll start with just a, a little background. So all my life I have worked in the tech industry. I worked for Microsoft for a couple of years. I worked for Kodak, then Eastman Kodak, for a couple of years. After that, I joined government. I was there for 13 years. In that 13 years, the first six, I spent marketing Kenya as an ICT investment destination. And the next um, seven years, I spent building partnerships and building ICT capacity and promoting investment in the space because we had capacity. I love to work in the ICT space to do those things. ICT, everything to do with infrastructure, I am following very closely and I contributed when I was in the space to contribute. Later, I implemented various projects to do with ICT capacity in recognition of gaps that were there, even after we did a lot of work in government to bring the capacity that was required. And then I moved on to start looking at, uh, therefore, what are we doing with that capacity? And I began the infrastructure. I began now to build capacity for content, for things that would go ahead and use that capacity. I left in June, immediately after Corona. And what I have been doing, in addition to enjoying the first few months of much-needed break, I have stayed very connected with the activities in the industry from a capacity perspective. Capacity in the sense that it is a growing industry. We did a lot of work to attract investment. We did a lot of work when I was in government to grow startups, and therefore I'm very interested in why it takes so long or it takes whatever time it takes for startups to scale up. Why we still have so much unemployment, despite having run such programs as Presidential Digital Talent Programme, but I am aware of the dynamics in the ecosystem, and therefore I remain very closely connected with the activities in that space. In my time, we did a lot of work to excite the private sector through the signature event by the ICT authority. I started that event immediately. I set foot in government. It was called the Connected Kenya, and this year it was there. I'm told it was very, very well attended. There's appetite for it. The significance of that forum, the summit, was, I don't know whether it was this year, to bring the private sector and the government to the table to look at the technology space to say what have we achieved, what do we need to achieve in order to get where we need to be and out of that create an agenda for the following year. And so that forum was very valuable in terms of uh, giving information to those who would be developing and creating policy here and there Because it's an ecosystem, it is not driven by one entity or one ministry. It is for multiple ministries. And therefore, it was always the biggest point of influence. If we got stuff right at that level, then policy came back fairly right. And then we always take advantage of review sessions, like I hope they reviewed during the Connected this year. To review and say so we have achieved so much is that all we could achieve or we are experiencing these gaps what do we do and who should be doing what my experience has been that while all that is happening there remains very significant issues that needs persistent, consistent attention. And those issues are that we have a lot of capacity in terms of infrastructure, and therefore there is need to look at how do we begin to optimize utilization of that infrastructure. At the same time as we do that, that optimization comes with opportunities for Kenyans, for our youth, for people talented to participate in the ICT sector. We see a little bit of it, but it's not enough. I don't know whether it will ever be enough, but then we look forward to tap the developments that have come with uh, that infrastructure development. And those opportunities, the uh, fruits of the work that I was part of the team that put in between 2007 and when I left, attracting multinationals because of the strong belief that if the multinationals come, then we could tap into them to grow our own capacities, to grow our own skills, to learn from them. And eventually begin to grow our own companies with a dream that some of those companies, together with the multinationals, would set up in Kenya. And we have seen they have finally come. And I speak in this forum, a very, very happy and contented person that uh, Microsoft finally set shop their ADC in K. Google, we have Amazon's, and I'm talking about their engineering aspects, not the sales, the box pushing aspects, because uh, the sales offices have been here for a while, but not the development centers.
0: I'll ask you to hold on to that thought. We'll get into the policy details later on, but this is very interesting. Because you have worked in, in two administrations and kind of set the tone and foundations for where we are now. We'll get to that later. So before we get to that, I'll just try, I'd like to rope on Faris. Faris, if you could just give us a commentary in terms of where we are on the prism of where we came from.
2: Okay, I'll give a bit of a divergent perspective because I feel that there are some untold stories. Checking Kenya started first from a like, um, standpoint where you've got. Universities like Jomo Kenyatta University, Nairobi University, that's had heavily technical computer science um, and engineering programs that we've benefited from. So like the pillar of this was talent and getting the talent right. Conrad, myself and a bunch of others were part of the early computer science programs that were introduced to high school. I think the first computer science program was introduced in 1995 for KCSE. So that sort of built the talent infrastructure. When it comes to tech firms, one of the largest tech firms in Kenya is Copicat, with revenues north of $150 million annually. And they started the firm not wrong in 1983. The sales, the IBMs, Microsofts of the world were doing their transactional business as, as of the mid-90s, and they were doing fairly well. And we also had quite a number of indigenous software development firms, people like FinTech Africa, ITC and Kraft Silicon Building Software primarily for the financial industry because sort of banking has always, interestingly enough, been an early adopter of tech. And the talent was now, from my perspective, that's where the talent was started. So in the 90s, the talent was for sales, tech salespeople. Then it went to sort of the networking industry as we were getting better connected. And then now it's finally come for developers. So this is nothing new. It's a cycle and we are generally better for it. So my, my view is that, that the early days are generally misrepresented, but from the 2000s onwards, everyone is fairly clear on what happened at that stage.
0: Thanks for that, Farid. Wayne, if you could uh, quickly
4: introduce yourself. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hi, everyone. I hope everyone is doing great. First and foremost, I'd like to say it's a big honour to be amongst uh, this panel, and I can see some of the, the big wigs who have been in the tech ever since the tech space started to emerge here in Kenya, and it's Actually, an honor being amongst you all. My name is Wen Kuo. I'm a front end engineer by profession. I'm currently working at Sky Garden and Coburo. And apart from that, I'm also a Google developer expert for Angular. And apart from uh, work, I do a lot of community, and uh, that is empowering individuals to become better in tech. And for those who are starting off, kind of like provide them with the guidelines, but in this case is more in terms of web development because that is one thing that I specialized in. And having started to love computers, I'd say, since uh, high school, when we had like this computer at home, I, first of all, like wanted to do medicine, but later on, I think computer became part of my life. And when I went to the university, I did computer science where I graduated at Ashesi University in Ghana back in 2019 and came back to Kenya to start working during my time in Ashesi. I was able to help grow the tech community in Ashesi whereby we had people who were freshmen or just people who were just interested in tech but they didn't didn't know where to start as the people who were kind of like giving them that guideline of how to start were able to really grow that tech community. Coming back to Kenya It was an opportunity also to partner with like-minded people in the tech space from GDG Nairobi to what I'm currently building, which is Angular Kenya, where we're now teaching people how to use Angular, the Angular framework that is by Google. And it's been an amazing experience being part of this growth in terms of the tech space. I wasn't there back then when it was emerging, but looking at some of the achievements that the people who have come before us have made it's quite an amazing thing to see until to where we are right now. We're now having to see big techs actually coming into our country to source for talent. So this is quite a great opportunity.
0: Thanks for this, uh, Wayne. Uh, quick question for you. Having spent time in Ghana yeah. and obviously you're Kenyan, mm-hmm. uh, or what would you say are the biggest differences between the two ecosystems?
4: Well, I, I wouldn't say that I did a lot of stuff when it comes to tech in Ghana because... It was during my final year in chassis, But during that time, I really got to see people who are really, really interested in tech. But probably some of the challenges they were facing was that, okay, there's so much noise out here in tech. For example, there's the React framework, there's the Angular framework, there's Python, there's C++ and all that. Some of the developers were like, okay, where do exactly do I start, right? Because there's so much noise out here. People are looking for these developers, People are looking for back-end developers. I don't know where to start. So I think the difference was that in Ghana, you could see that bit of confusion and maybe the people who had already made it were not maybe easily accessible. And so we asked people who kind of like found that problem to be in existent in the tech space, we had to come up with ways of like having different tracks and by that I mean having a tech community in which you cutter some of these things you cut our mobile development web development backend development and whatnot and this helps the audiences or attendees to really get to understand first of all the basics like what does it entail over here what does it entail over there and when coming back to Kenya I'd say Kenya had kind of like that edge it's just that probably there are no vibrant communities as much as you'd, you'd like. Giving an example of myself, when I came back home here in Kenya and I wanted to look for a community that does Angular. Yes, I did hear like we had Angular developers, but we didn't really have that community where we can say, okay, we're coming together as Angular developers. We want to learn more from each other. We want to at least get bits and pieces because, you know, I I might be an expert, but probably you might know something that I don't know, or I know something that maybe you don't know. And that was the thing that I saw personally lacking uh, when it comes to some of the communities here in Kenya. And while it was in Ghana, in Ghana it was more of like trying to just give them that exposure and then they can definitely choose for themselves, which path to take.
0: All right. Thanks uh, for that uh, insight. Conrad I'm going to pose the next question to you being that you employ over 30 people. Now, there's been a tech talent shortage globally. Engineering managers, as far back as 2015, 2014, were kind of firing the warning shot. Especially with a lot of money going into startups, and everyone faces, including your your Google's, Facebook's, Oracle's, and SAPs. They're all faced with talent issues. Now, put it into perspective. You're compared to big companies. Your company is relatively small in terms of the amount of tech talent that you can consume. How has this affected you? And what should we expect over the next
1: couple of years? I am a graduate from the university of keeping it real. So let's call a spade a spade. Compared to these guys, my company is tiny. I think they spend more on stamps than my entire revenue. But, uh, <laughs> but that's okay, that's okay. All of us, including Microsoft and Apple, began in a garage. And um, you know, we developed since. But uh, in terms of w- 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 what you have asked me, uh, in terms of talent now, the the reality is that this is not new. So let's, let's get that out of the way. As far as I said, there were different aspects of talent war. But even specifically for sort of development, before Microsoft and all these guys were here, we had the same problem, but now the usual suspects then were KPMG and Deloitte and Safaricom and PWC. those were the guys who now would mop up a lot of the computer science talent. So it's not really a new uh, issue. With regards to the new players, uh, Microsoft has set up the ADC, Google setting up theirs, uh, I, 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 Amazon is coming AWS. Uh, VMware, I believe, is also coming. And I think more should come. Facebook should come. Netflix, Amazon, even Tinder and OnlyFans should come and set up here. Why not? The talent is here. But if you're asking me, is it a good thing that this is happening? Absolutely, that these players are here. Is it a good thing that these guys are paying very generous salaries and amazing benefits? Absolutely. Is it a good thing that developers have a choice? and You can choose where to work and all technologies to work on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Should we, in any way, interfere with this? You know, Either from the employee level, people want to move, or the employers. Absolutely not. But here's the reality. By virtue of the fact that they, they can offer uh, a lot of very good uh, packages in terms of uh, salaries and benefits and so on, that is a fantastic thing for the industry and to interfere with it. However... The reality is there's a demographic for which we feel the impact very acutely. So for me, for instance, I've, I've lost a lot of my engineering team and my quality assurance and implementation to various players. And, and that's okay. And they left with my full blessing. And we, in fact, even still keep touch. However, there's a very real impact for me is that my execution now has been affected. The expertise that I require Let's talk about engineering. Like I've said, we're in seven countries and we're e- e- expecting to grow that. Now, the caliber of talent I need to execute the work, I, I cannot use uh, newbies from university. So I have to train them. And um, over the la- for the 12 years plus the previous 10 years out in supply chain, you basically need to set aside about 12 to 14 months to upskill a developer to be productive. That's upskilling in what sense, in the technology, in the, the domain. Like, so our domain is fintech, specifically investment capital markets. So if I have a developer who I want to build a system that values bonds, I have to train him on what bonds are and how they are valued and the, the methods and so on and so forth. I have to train him on the technology we use. I have to train him on best practices. I have to train him on uh, ancillary things like communication skills, critical thinking, and so on. So that is an investment which I have to absorb and which is fine. I don't mind doing it. It is part of doing your bit to contribute to the um, ecosystem. But however, what has changed now is before I I came for this, I I went through our employee records and our retention was about four to four and a half years, which is a fantastic retention rate. You're lucky if you can get two years. So we are like double the average. Fantastic. But now, due to these new developments, that has really shrunk. The time with which I have this resource has really shrunk. One of the things we do is we 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 have a very vibrant internship program. So we get interns from second year, third year, and work with them. And we've been doing this for 12 years, and it has been hugely, hugely successful. I think almost half of our employees used to be interns at some point. But now the reality is if you have somebody for four years and you use one year training them, they have three years to sort of to plow back the value that that was invested in them into building product. But now due to this dynamics, that that time interval has shrunk and it will get to a point where now it is as much as the one year. Now that is a huge problem for me because what's going to happen is I'm going to spend 12 months training somebody, then I will lose them immediately. So in other words, I am training people for free. And that is a cost that no one would absorb, let alone a startup that is strained in terms of resources. So the discussion today really is not whether it is good for these players to be around. That should not be the discussion. The discussion should be what do we do about the fact that there is a very real impact on SMEs and startups who are unable to execute by virtue of the fact that they are unable to retain this talent through no fault of it's not that i'm i'm, I'm cheap and i don't want to pay people it's just that we are not funded so we are operating value on revenue. and the reality is we, we can't afford to pay salaries like microsoft can or google or safari Com, whoever these guys are we just can't and, and we would like to but now we can not get to that point because we can't execute So you have a chicken egg problem. I can't pay the salaries that I would like to because I cannot execute and I cannot execute because I cannot pay the salaries that I would like. So I'm stuck in this loop and now that really is where I would like the discussion to be. What can we do much as we enjoy the benefits of having all these guys here? And it's a fantastic thing I would like more and more developers to be working on all these various projects, that, that expertise and experience and skill, working in a bureaucracy, working in a multinational, working in distributed teams. As in all, nothing but good things can come of it. But the question is, what do we do about those who feel the pinch the most? which is startup and SMEs, what can be done for them? I think that's what I would like this discussion today to center on rather than phrasing it as a winner-take-all sort of thing.
0: I think that's a perfect uh, segue, and I'll I'll rope the next question now to Eunice. She's been involved in policy in one way or another, at least influencing policy. Now, Eunice, we are faced with a situation in which smaller companies are being outpriced by the market, and these are market conditions. It is what it is. And what's happening in Kenya happened in India at some point, Asia at some point. It it needs a multi-pronged solution. But now from a policy point of view, we just kind of talk us through the thinking. What happens now when you have such a situation? And I know we can't speak much about the current administration. We can talk about it much later towards the end of the conversation. But what needs to be done?
3: I guess that is really uh, the million dollar question. And thank you. I cannot really speak in terms of administrations because I left government. Now I want to speak as Eunice. And I also want to clarify that what I do is actually I consult in that space of skills and capacity development and I support startups. So what can be done? The problems that are being talked about are real. And I quite agree with the speakers that these issues were not <clears throat> Sorry, completely unexpected. They are totally expected. It has been a gradual growth. We came into the space in early 2000 and have continued to grow gradually. And what we are seeing is a growth, gradual adjustment in the ecosystem from the key ingredients that go into growing a, a dynamic tech industry. If I were for a minute to look at the problem of how then do we strike a healthy balance between the benefits that come with the multinationals that are very necessary and the challenges that the startups or the smaller companies, especially the Kenyan companies that find it hard to afford the the developers. The, The challenge is real. The challenge has to be addressed in a collaborative manner by both industry and government. This is what I believed when I was in government, and it is exactly what I believe. The government principally enables industry to do what they need. In my early days, when I was promoting Kenya as an ICT investment destination, I learned very quickly from Cisco. It was the first company that I spoke with or approached me in my then role to set up in Kenya. And they came and quickly asked for something like, I think they were asking for 5,000 developers. And I quickly headed to the Ministry of Education to find out how many graduates were coming out of the university then and and what uh, quality of graduates in computer science and what have you against the criteria that was being given. They immediately taught me that The demand has to eventually balance with the supply. At that time, I was given only that big number, and he sent me back, and I consulted my bosses, including my mentor, Dr. Bitangendemo, and my boss. We discussed what then are we going to do. We are going around calling, but when they come and ask for this, many experienced developers we don't have. The policy that has to work has to focus on technology education. Technology education has to be supported by both government and industry in the sense that technology education has an element of, if it is to meet this demand or balancing of the supply and demand, it has to focus professional skills to complement uh, the skills that come fresh from the university so we can up all the skills and have some uh, continuous pipeline of varied levels of skill sets in programmers, in software. That policy has to stretch all the way to primary levels where we must excite primary school children to begin to love coding STEM studies. We must push it into colleges and universities where then students take courses in that space and get tested. That is an area where the government can sort of excite the the private sector, the multinationals, to really partner with the universities so that they bring their very expanded expertise and play the role of certification as well as mentorship as well as deepening research skills so we can have good balance of what skill sets are available locally compared to what these multinationals are looking for and then when they come they would find exactly what they want now So that is uh, policy at that level. When we move a little bit further, when they graduate, favorable policy has to receive good support from government across the board that they need to get work experience. We are getting them, they're in small numbers from the universities and colleges. It's not the number that we need to be able to create a healthy pipeline, but they also need exposure in terms of experience, and that's why I commend the government on the uh, Presidential Digital Talent Program, whose one component, and I was uh, running that uh, program uh, from 2015 until I left in, in 2020, one component is software engineering. My experience was that we could not meet the demand even then when it came to placement. They spent about three months in private sector and everybody in private sector said, please give me software engineers, please give me developers. We could not meet that demand, which then takes us back to how do we get the universities, the colleges and the stakeholders in the ecosystem to really feed into the pipeline so we can churn out more. Such policies which blend technology, education, and apprenticeship is very, very healthy to be able to ensure our smaller players get affordable skill sets. Again, those partnerships, policies that promote partnerships, looking at what is it will guarantee these multinationals some value for investing and partnering in training through our universities. Right now, I can't talk about what value that would look like. It requires the ecosystem to sit together and and discuss together and begin to understand what is that value. In the final analysis, they are all trying to push their cloud solutions and other technology solutions. The truth of the matter is, The more players, software companies, technology companies, technology users in the market, the more the population uses technology, the more demand there is going to be for cloud solutions at whatever level. That brings me to the fourth policy. The fourth policy has to include something about educating our population to be able to use technology for their everyday use. That is your typical ICT promotion. If we make the population comfortable with tinkering and using and they begin to know how do I store my documents in the cloud so that when my phone gets lost, I can still access my contacts and my files. That kind of a policy, and I don't know how to frame that one, it's an advocacy It's all these summits that bring everybody to the table to communicate the relevance of technology benefits to non-technology users. Those are some of the policies. I want to go back to the technology education and talk about a program we started during the ICT board days, but which didn't go far. It was a software certification uh, program that we tried to run with the support of uh, the World Bank. We did, the pilot succeeded, but we could not implement at scale. What happened is that Rwanda jumped at the opportunity. We were doing it with Carnegie Mellon University and set up a center in Rwanda. And today, and you can see even in the social media all over the place, Rwanda is quoted as getting it right. Now, that is something I would urge the government of the day to revisit so that it serves to give developers coming from universities or Kenya or East Africa an opportunity to gauge where they fit so that even if they're working for the Kenyan companies or the multinationals, the quality is the same. And uh, the differential in pay is based on experience. Perhaps I can stop there so that if you want me to engage more, I can come in a little later. Thanks
0: for that, that, Eunice. So we've had the view now from, you know, someone who's worked ex-government in terms of how these things should work. Now I'll turn the same question on to Faris. What solutions can we have to this? What, What we have is a retention problem in terms of talent, if you're looking at it at the firm or at the company or enterprise level. Now yourself as being playing in the SME space for quite some time, and also bridging to big tech, what do you think needs to be done in order for there to be some decent levels of retention?
2: It's a problem I've actually been looking at for a number of years. Because a few years ago, I think two, three years ago, I was involved in an effort by VMware to solve this problem in Africa. And they had an initiative called Virtualize Africa. What's happening is the way the tech firms engage with talent in the US is not how they engage with talent here. So, like Google was a PhD project by some Stanford guys, and the university supported them, and they in turn support the university. So there's a very healthy cross pollination that happens with industry, and academia, and government in this other market. So if you go to Cambridge University, there's the Gates Lab. The, the same thing doesn't happen here. So right now, as things stand, I understand Conrad's perspective. It seems very extractive, where they wait for local industry to invest in the talent, grow and mature the talent, and obviously they have more money, and they come and snap up the talent. And the salary skills boggle the mind, you know. So at times you might be paying a developer in Kenya $2,000, folks like Microsoft can up to 10 dollars dollars per month. The math completely breaks. But the thing is, this is not the first time it's happened, and they keep going back to what industry did the last time. One of the most responsible firms when it comes to this is Cisco, because Cisco came in and set up learning centers across all universities in Kenya. And whenever people would finish high school, they'd all go to CCNA, and be known to many people, that actually solved the talent problem when we had an eventual vacuuming of networking talent by the global multinationals. So the likes of Ericsson came up, Huawei, Nokia Siemens, and they cleaned up the market. And ISPs were really struggling. But the beauty was that there was enough talent in the pipeline, all these guys who studied CCNA, CCNP, who were there to sort of take over and didn't require too much hand-holding. So the investment had been made. The, 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 the project VMware was trying to run was to basically give people cloud skills in university so that you can take the VMware certification courses for free. And when you leave the university, you can sort of be sent into somebody's cloud environment. Because most of these cloud environments are fairly similar you're looking for a hypervisor way to connect to the network software defined networking storage it's like you it's a fairly standard platform branding changes you know amazon will call their storage one thing azure will call it the other thing but basically the underpinnings the logic is the same so i think something like that is what needs to happen because even for the global vendors it'll get to a point where there's nobody else for them to hire because the likes of conrad won't be able to compete they are not able to compete. they can't provide a new talent pipeline to be used up. So they'll come in and pick at a1,000 developers and say, "Oh no, this market is not mature enough." But literally the approach they took for the American market where they're mature, and here is not the same. So I do believe that the universities and these global firms should participate and try and fund local universities trying to ensure that the curriculum in the local universities is good enough for them to hire immediately after. So what Conrad is talking about, the sort of lack of maturity of the developers is no longer a factor. And you know that as soon as somebody leaves, let's say, Jumoke Kenyatta University with a computer science degree, you reduce the amount of time it takes to make an employee productive. And that solves everyone's problem, because the A student will end up at Microsoft or Google or AWS, but basically everyone will want these developers and so it will work for everyone. I just think you know invest in the ecosystem you're participating in, it works in the long run. And the bit with all those people who are doing Cisco certified networking associate and all of that is they went on and became evangelists for Cisco. So in almost any bank in Kenya, almost any farm in Kenya, you will inevitably find Cisco networking here. At some point, even if you got a connection, an internet connection from Zuko, the Wi-Fi device in your house was a Cisco device. So it will pay dividends to invest in the ecosystem.
0: Thanks for that, Faris. Uh, this is a quick note to the audience. We will open up the audience engagement session on the hour. So if anyone has a question that they would like to pose to the panelists, you can either... Uh, tweet at uh, Mongo Capital. You can DM at Mongo Capital, or you can ask for a speaking slot, and we'll process those on a first come first served uh, basis. So if anyone has any interesting comments as well to contribute to the discussion, you will be more than uh, welcome to share your, your your comments on this issue of addressing this talent drain. Eunice talked about it from a policy level. Faris has talked about it from an enterprise level. Both startup and big tech. I'd like to call upon Wayne to talk about it from a developer's point of view. Wayne, it's no secret that you're the youngest person in the room, but and you're the guys who are very valuable now. But if you could just give us your perspective on what is happening now and what can be done mm-hmm. to retain someone. So you're working for Sky Garden. What should Sky Garden do to ensure mm-hmm. that you're able to stay for at least three years?
4: It's true that I'm the youngest here, and trying to get all this wisdom is really amazing. And... I'd like to also stress on Faris's point, whereby it's all about investing in the tech ecosystem. I think that is something that maybe not many might look at it as something that could be beneficial for them in five years to come. But if you look at, for example, in the universities right now, if I give an example of the tech communities that are springing up, right? I think we have the IEEE. I, I know one of them is in Kenyatta University. We have the Google Developer Student Club. We have Microsoft students partners. If you look at uh, these tech communities, you'll find like they're supporting the students by providing them with skills. And this is away from the classroom. So that is things to do with if it's IEEE, there's going to be a little a bit more of engineering stuff. If you look at the Google Developer Student Clubs, you'll see there's going to be a lot more on Google technologies and how to solve problems in Google technologies. If you look at Microsoft Student Partners, it's going to be more inclined to Microsoft products or just having that space whereby techies can come together and just learn from each other. I'm going to talk from a perspective of a developer. For me, being in a university, and probably you've heard this from other university students, they'll probably tell you that probably what I'm learning in class is not what is um, actually needed out here, right? Because the world is continuously becoming a global village or it already is a global village in the sense that I, someone from Denmark or from Poland can reach out to me via LinkedIn and ask me like, hey, Wayne, I've seen you done computer science. We've seen some of the projects you've done. Do you care for a chat? And for some case, uh, these companies have seen, for example, the projects that I've built and it's probably in line with probably a tech stack. For example, if it's Angular, And they are a company that deals with whose technology is mainly Angular. So they'll definitely come to me because they've seen like, ah, you've done Angular and therefore would want to have a chat with you and see how you could join us, right? And you'll find that I have learned Angular not because of the class, but it's because of these communities that have sprung up during my time in the university. Again, I'm going to give an example of myself. While doing computer science in a chassis, I did get the technical skills at the same time, some bit of practicality. And I did the basic stuff, which is the HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. But when you come out here, it's not just those three basic structures or web structures can help you get a job. It's going to be more than that because as we continue advancing in terms of tech, so many frameworks are coming up, and these frameworks are meant to build robust websites and all that. So you have React, you have whether it's felt, whether you have Vue, whether you have Angular. Any framework out here. And it's because these companies know already that, okay, we know that you know HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, but we want to see you in action while working with React. And you'll find like some of these companies, they won't even really look at your credentials in terms of, did you finish university? And all. That. they'll be like, okay, we know that you can do this, but we want to see you doing it. It's not about what you know, but what you can do with the skills that you have. And therefore you'd find that, these this communities or these institutions investing in the universities, it really helps a lot because you'll find out these students who probably were more serious into these tech communities and they come out here and they'll be like, ah, okay, I know I can now actually get a job abroad. And probably it's not because of they want to go abroad, but probably one, they've looked at the company and they've seen that oh, there's a clear path to growth. At the same time, there's of course good pay and At the same time, I have that room to voice my opinion as a developer, not because I want to drive this company, but because my opinion matters when it comes to discussing things like infrastructure and all that. So you will find like most startups or um, international startups, or whether it's a local startup, right, they always not only look at who they're employing, but exactly what they can do. And at the same time, when it comes to the parks, that's probably it's already synonymous with companies like Google, Microsoft is, there's that clear path for growth. And at the same time, they have the thing of, you can always voice your opinion. If it's something that you don't like, please let it be known without fear of being shamed or anything. I have once interviewed with one of the Kenyan companies here. And I remember when I went to that interview and I told them like what I can do and all that. I gave them the figure um, in terms of the salary which I say that this is something that I feel would be fair as a compensation to me. And this is because I bring value to the team, A, B, C, and D. I remember the CEO actually told me, no, I don't think we can pay you that. We look for someone cheaper. To me, as a developer, that would really mean like, okay, so it's not really about the quality you're looking for. You're really looking at just who's the cheapest in terms of the amount of money I'm going to pay. And for me, it was really a put-off because... First of all, it's not that I just put the figure out of nowhere and tell them like, I want this amount of money, but it's because I told them I have this number of experience building websites. This is the value I think I'll bring to the company and even supported it with figures. But in the end, I was like, no, I'm going to look for someone cheaper.
0: Now That's a big problem with the culture of some managers, but hopefully the market readjusts and Mm redirects how people value tech talent. I'd like you to, you know, hold on to that thought for now. Thank you very much for giving us your perspective as a developer. And I'll get back to you shortly. Just a note to the audience, uh, you can ask for a speaking slot now. Uh, The questions are streaming in. We would like to get views or comments and and, and questions from people. And we've got fantastic panelists here from across the spectrum. Conrad, there's a question from Bonio Yunge, who happens to be an in-house analyst at Mwango Capital. And he would like to know what you experience with the CMA Sandbox. Your company, uh, Innova, ha- has participated in the Sandbox. And you know, CMA gets a lot of flack. But when you answer it, I'd like you to also comment on why these programs are important, especially for
1: local companies and the smaller companies. For a bit of context, we, we participated in a program run by the CMA called the CMA Sandbox, where the idea was to pitch some technology to them that was addressing an issue relevant to the capital markets. So the solution we pitched was a tool that could be used by all the players in the capital markets, ranging from the CMA themselves to custodians to fund managers, that ideally would allow them to, in real time, visualize the assets that they are holding at whatever level, either at fund manager level or custodian or regulator in real time, and also provide a lot of analytics that would inform decision making. That was the first phase. Now the second phase that we're working on currently is adding now tooling like machine learning to now even add more insight to uh, the behaviors in the market so we can predict trends and react to, to movements. So that really was uh, what we participated in. It was a a fantastic experience. I think uh, in terms of pushing us really to uh, innovate around that, uh, in terms of engaging the regulator, because it's an itch that they have, because there are almost 40 fund managers uh, operating in Kenya and having insights as to what is happening, both from policy level and also uh, consumer protection is, is, is is a challenge. So that was a fantastic uh, experience. And in fact, it went so well. We are also engaging Zambia also on the same. So they are also quite keen to participate on it. And uh, this is a very timely discussion now because I can't move at the speed that I would like because I don't have the the number of of talent that I would like to to move at the speed I would like. But uh, anyway, that's a problem I'm sure I I'll, I'll, re- I'll resolve in times yeah. So in terms of the value of such programs, I, I wholeheartedly think that uh, industry should participate whenever possible with the government in terms of uh, coming together to address um, shared problems or where value can be added. As a matter of fact, that very sandbox, our demo, the UK regulator happened to be there as well, and they were were really blown away at what they saw. It just goes to show that, uh, which is something I think we should hold, there is a lot of innovation and talent in Kenya as we are with all our problems. We have a lot of brilliant, talented developers and analysts, quality assurance engineers and so on. And there's no reason why we can't operate on a global scale. In today's space, there's a lot of discussion about multinationals, which is well and good. But I think what we should be asking ourselves is what will it take for pure infrastructure and Innova and all these Kenyan companies? What will it take for us to make those multinationals so that we can be going all over the world and creating this problem? I think that really is where the discussion should be at.
0: Thanks thanks for that, Conrad. And that's a very good point in terms of
1: developing
0: local capacity, local IP. And I've got my thoughts on this. I'll, I'll kind of push them towards the end of the conversation. There's a question here for Eunice. And the question is from Vince Kipiagon. And he says, where do passionate self-taught developers fit into the tech ecosystem since most companies are requiring degrees in computer science? And as you answer that, there has been a trend, especially over the last half decade, so the last three to five years, because the demand for engineers and programmers has just skyrocketed that even the likes of Apple, Google, Facebook, or Fang, as they're called, have reduced the entry level. So you can actually get into a proper job based on your skill set and not a piece of paper. So over to you, Yuna. Thank
3: you. This is a fantastic question, and we are in time for it. From a technology evolution point of view, there is a time when self-teaching is going to rule, and certificate will be an added benefit, but the primary benefit to get anywhere will be the skill. We are in time for it. Now, when I was commenting about policy earlier, I talked about... Uh, a certification program. This certification program, I described it from the context of what was done by ICT board in my days and what value was to be uh, realized from it. And that value is exactly what this question is seeking. In conceiving that program and implementing it, we had recognized that there was a lot of talent that had not reached The level of being certified or that was coming from sources that did not have a certification process. And we had also realized that there was demand, there was a certain segment in the market of startups and businesses that could actually employ that kind of talent. Now, the challenge with that talent is that much as they will be very good and there is research everywhere in the public domain about some of the best engineers who are you know, self-taught, the challenge is that the employers are socialized to look, look fast for a certificate. The employers are entities that are governed seriously by policies, processes, and procedures. And I would like to be bold here and say, if you have signed up for a job by an employer somewhere, a big employer, a well-established employer, then you sign up to work by the rules that they have there. The purpose of governance is to ensure standardization, equity in the way a business is done and to achieve certain level of quality uniformly. Since these hiring managers cannot escape from this policy, then there is need for self-taught software engineers, good as they are, to seek where they can fit. Where they can fit is to seek such certifications. As someone was talking about the Cisco ones for networking, this particular certification, if I ever found my way back into government, I would seriously advocate for it. And even if I don't find my way uh, back into the government, I will still advocate for it. It is a certification that gives self-taught engineers an opportunity to test themselves and come out of the other side with a certificate. This certificate gives assurance to hiring managers who are bound by their company laws and policies uh, to hire people with certificates. It gives them a window to bring them in. Once they come in, now they can prove themselves there. At the same time, I would be suggesting that the ecosystem has a duty to keep the discussion alive, that it's not necessarily the certificate that delivers, it is the skill. That conversation has to be sustained so that government is usually a huge body and also the biggest employer, and if by any chance it found a way Or coming up with a policy which allows the entry level programmers not to, you know, have to have a degree that would be such a big break, but industry you know, can find a way of working around it by advocating for these certifications so they can get the comfort that they they need. I want to also qualify and defend the hiring managers because they work for companies, some of them are listed, and they have the shareholders' interest at heart. They cannot hire people whom uh, they feel may not necessarily um, deliver, and they don't have anything to assure them that those people can actually deliver. In that case, this kind of certification is inescapable. I want to speak about those self-certifying uh, programmers as well. Unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever, uh, they have to appreciate the principle of 10,000. They must not be persuaded to want to take the lift to get to the highest paying job. They must be open to taking the stairs. Just get the first foot in and work their steps upwards. One of the problems that is there in the industry, and I, I am sitting on various boards of uh, various startups, is that even the self They are unaffordable, they ask for a lot of money, and you look at their experience and the hiring person doesn't have a way of confirming unless they test you practically and they don't have the luxury of time and resources to keep giving practical interviews, they need some assurance, something they can cling on. So it will be nice for all these developers to not go in and ask a lot, but aim to get their foot in first once they are in they will grow within the policy structures and the pay grades in the organization. That would be my stab at how can we help them. Let's keep pushing government to revive this software certification program. It is working in Rwanda beautifully, and it can work in Kenya because this is where it was born. And they picked it up after we tested the pilot. I'll stop there for now.
0: Thanks.
2: I have a bit of a cheeky take on this. And many of the people who started the companies that are hiring and deploying that technology are not certified. And most recently, Bob Collimo didn't have a university degree. I think it's an excuse hiring managers in Kenya use to eliminate people. And it's also because they do not internally have the skill to be able to separate the wheat from the chaff. An experienced hiring manager will be able to tell if you can actually do the work. If you defer to credentials, you will lose the plot. And one of the things about technology is the industry working cloud computing didn't exist 20-something years ago. The people who are leading that industry today literally built it using fundamentals. And many of them, like Bezos, didn't have certificates in cloud computing. Like we've decided
0: to make it a roadblock.
2: We can also decide to take a chance on people. That's my view.
0: Valid points, uh, Faris. and I see this myself having been in several ecosystems and looking at the hiring cultures and uh, coming back home. I, I think HR practitioners need to be upskilled in terms of how to deal with the new world. And there's some HR firms that kind of looking into this carefully. And you look at you know your, your big tech companies and you look at even small startups and everything else. When it comes to hiring tech, recruitment is not an HR problem. Actually, recruitment and retention is a management and HR. So it's Both stakeholders have to have a clear policy in terms of how to test both the practical side and non-practical side, and then HR goes in and finds the right candidates and your HR policies will still apply. But the road to a proper functioning engineering team requires a lot of people skills being given to your managers. And it's an industry that people progress rapidly. And I remember spending some time with folks at Facebook and they actually were commenting that they had to set up an internal academy to train managers or to train seniors on how to deal with people, on how to upskill them, on how to get the best out of their, whoever is reporting to you. And eventually what they did as a company in the very early days is they had two paths to career development. You could either go on as an individual contributor, and you're not going to be given anyone to report to you, and you just do your thing in a corner. But if you do get into some sort of a management position or some sort of a team lead position, then there are certain KPIs and skills that you had to have in order to be able to run teams effectively. And that means Recruiting, retention, upskilling, and the usual stuff that goes with management. A good point there, Faris. So there's a question for you, Faris, as well. And this question is from Jesse Ghana. The question is, thinking with dynamics in the geoeconomic space and looking at the East Africa community, how does this conversation fit in, especially in terms of fluidity of talent across borders? What are the opportunities and challenges? And is there hope? I don't know if there's hope. I don't know if tech talent actually features in any of the ESC discussions.
2: I'll I'll, I'll give a very long answer to this. And there's a paper um, written by Michael Mabosin on the rise of intangibles. Tech companies have figured this out. Traditional companies haven't. And many traditional tech companies haven't figured this out. When you owned a hotel, you know, Hilton Hotel, the asset was the building. And it showed up in your balance sheet. In the world we're in today, the investments you make are in your talent. And so everything is in the PL. and The biggest problem with this is your core input is human capital, labor, and knowledge. And it's very difficult to quantify that. So you need to get it right. So to answer the question, if another East Africa country gets it right and does a better job than Kenya, talent will move. If Tanzania gets it right, talent will move. The EU has begun to realize the folly of their path and are now giving people an opportunity to be remote workers in those countries. You can get a visa if you earn above a certain amount of money and get residents in multiple EU countries today. So if you understand that the core asset is not the brand, the core asset is not the technology you have, but the core asset a firm has is the people and its ability to produce new technology and compete in this world, then even as a government, you will understand that you need to do everything you need to do to retain these people and keep them in your country because they're the ones who produce, they're the key factors of productivity in this world. So ultimately, to answer the question, tech talent is going to become a lot more fluid in the region. The benefits Kenya has right now is we have the best data center infrastructure, we have the most opportunity, we have the best internet so Netflix has a cash here, all these guys are coming here. It's like a cluster that's formed in Kenya. But just the way the cluster has formed here, somebody else can get it. And I'm not sure. It doesn't seem that the ESC is particularly keen on it. What puzzles me is that this particular sector of the economy has some of the highest amount of FDI in, in all our industries. Like I keep making the points that $300 million worth of data center projects have been announced in the country in the last couple of years. But it's like the policymakers in the region are not yet clued in to exactly how large an industry technology is. The instant they're clued into it, I think incentives in the region will change. A lot of talent will migrate away from the country.
0: Thanks, Faris. Next question uh, is for you, Wayne. And this is also from Ghana. And he says, the gig economy, we have techies in this space too. Is there a solution that we can embrace going forward as a solution to the talent.
4: Well, as for the gig economy, I, I wouldn't say like there's some sort of like a framework right now in terms of how we are going to probably control it in any way because one one thing is that when it comes to gig economy, it depends on of course the demand for whatever the person wants to be built. So this will have the developers sign up to things like Fiverr or AppWork um, and all that. And you'll find people go to these sites like AppWork because they have projects that they want to be done at a specific timeline. And the thing with this is that I can't really say for sure that it's something that we can really have a solution for right now because it's an ever-changing situation, in my opinion, because we don't know what the person will need, for example, And we don't know how we could probably bring it, for example, if it's taken in government, to see how we can help this. My take on that is that we really need to have everyone on the table to come and discuss some of these things that are popping up. Because as a developer right now, when I look at the tech space, it's ever-changing. Things that were done 10 years ago is not the same as we are doing it right now because things are so fast-paced. Nowadays, anyone can just get a job, for example, in Belgium, and the company would say like connotation package and all that. And that's it. That's how we have our going to work in Belgium. And of course it's a good thing because this person is gonna be paid well for it and all that. But immediately when we now start having these all these roadblocks in place, then we're really going to lose um some of these people. So I'd say for the gig economy, I'd say it's something that everyone should sit down um at the table and like really discuss. How can each party benefit out of all this?
0: Thanks for your thoughts, Wayne. Now, throughout this conversation, I think everyone, all the speakers have highlighted to the need to go back and collaborate, whether it's at the developer level and the developer communities, whether it's at the enterprise level and small entities or smaller companies kind of collaborating with others in terms of shaping, uh, their future or the niche of the industry and collaboration with government and policymakers and collaboration with, with big tech. Now, the beauty about the market is the market kind of decides or would push people into certain clusters. But if if you're running government, you'd want to kind of influence things out of self-interest or self-preservation. And having looked at the ecosystem in the early days, you know, the early days, late 90s, early 2000s, There's a lot of collaboration. There's that spirit of people to collaborate. What happened over the last 10 years where developers stopped self organizing or they're not organizing at a scale that we thought they would? Private sector is kind of pretty much, if you look into private tech, especially SMEs, it's all over the place. There's no unified voice. There are critical issues when it comes to data privacy that nobody's really talking about and we're just hoping that an activist or two will champion the needs of the entire community or the entire country. Then you have a government that is pretty much rather less on tech policy, let alone running government and on and by itself. So I'd just like to get thoughts around the room. We've built, the last decade has been built over the work that was done between 2002 and 2012. What exactly has happened and how can we move on from it. Granted that Kenya is still primarily much better than most other countries in sub-Saharan Africa. It's an open question. So any of the panelists, please uh, feel free to uh, contribute.
1: Maybe I can approach it a bit differently. All of us know a company called Huawei. In 2021, uh, their revenue was 100 billion US dollars. That is 2021. In in 2020, it was 136 billion dollars. In fact, it was a decline. Now, Huawei is, uh, you know, technically a fairly young company. They were started in at least in telco terms in eighty-seven. And when Huawei began, they had no expertise and had no CV and experience and so on. They began just like all of us in a room as an idea, and they pitched for work for the Chinese for the Chinese government. And the people evaluating the pitch said, We can't go with these guys because they have no experience. Let us go with the usual suspects, Ericsson and Nokia and so on. But then somebody in that room said, Hang on, hang on. If we eliminate these guys because they don't have experience, how are they ever going to get experience? Uh, let, give them the work, let them fail. They will learn why they failed and they'll do better and they will do better and they will do better. Last I checked that out of 45 telcos in Africa, Huawei is running 39 of them. Sometimes the intervention is as simple as giving people an opportunity and letting them sink or swim. By virtue of being in Africa with all our problems, the one thing we are adept at is learning how to survive. So, with all these grandiose technology projects of government data centers and whatever technologies, Huduma centers and so on, if you dig hard enough, How many of these opportunities are executed by local firms, local tech companies? How do we build that capacity um, internally if we never get an opportunity to do that work because we don't have experience? Every single person at some point did not have experience. One way of changing this narrative and making the the ecosystem a lot more vibrant is if government would eat its own dog food and said, yes, we're going to build a cloud but we are going to execute it using local resources or whatever uh, technologies we are going to build for whatever purpose, we're going to use uh, local vendors and local skills. Those of us who have been around for a long time will remember I used to have a running gag with Connected Kenya where I would tell them I would volunteer myself and my time to assemble uh, university students and they're going to build an occurrence book system for the police to be using. I will volunteer my time and every year I would pitch it to them And they would never take it up. But how much in terms of capacity building, experience, uh, know-how, knowledge exchange would we have if we were to now do such um, collaboration? Going back to what we talked about in terms of engaging with universities, people have said that these multinationals should uh, work with the universities. And I I agree uh, up to a point. It is not the university's work to teach you Angular or Java or you know, C-Sharp or Ruby, all these frameworks, that is not their work because they have no chance of doing it. Which framework should university teach? There are thousands of them and they're changing every year. So the, the, the best analogy for this is, let's use an example of an engine. A university should teach you how an internal combustion engine works, full stop. Now, once you finish university, you should be handed off to somebody who will tell you, now in Subaru, this is how we design our engines. And in Volkswagen, this is how we design our engines. And in fact, our engines, we put them in the back of the car, not in the front. So the intervention in terms of making university graduates learn the skills for the technology of the day is not the university's problem. It is the industry's problem. It is tertiary education problem. There should be colleges that now say that once you have learned the fundamentals of development, now come to this college and we'll teach you how to execute web development using whichever framework you want, because they are, they are best optimized for that. So if you combine and then also government giving these projects to to local firms or, or universities for that matter, or students. Why should university projects be those same old boring projects? University uh, video library project and so on. Why can't the pro- project be this year? the university or what for example is going to build a police occurrence book system so all the the students are going to work on it different aspects of it but they will all work on this so you will get the best of both worlds you get a practical solution you will get on the ground mentorship because industry players like myself will participate in upskilling them they would get actual experience working on a real life project and they can en- enjoy the the use or whatever they have built. So if we did this across uh, all the universities and all these projects that government is doing in terms of ICT enabling, that would really move the needle in terms of capacity building, in terms of sparring entrepreneurship, uh, sparring innovation. So that way, I think that particular stone could kill several birds if we were daring enough to adopt something like it.
0: Thanks for your thoughts, Conrad. Any other person in the room who would want to comment on the Aspect of uh, collaboration uh, amongst uh, stakeholders. Before we move on to the next uh, question,
1: so
2: I'll, I'll just add on to what Conrad has said. If you look at many of the original BSD districts we had earlier, on were university projects, and that's why he said like particular vendors can come in and train for the niche needs that they have. You can offer, you know, extracurricular courses like beyond the core curriculum. If you want to take courses in Angular or whatever, you can take them within the university. But I just get the sense that in Kenya, something broke along the way. I think maybe it's just the fact that the ecosystem is getting larger. So it fragmented a bit, and then it's going to um, come back together at some point. I see a lot more collaboration nowadays than I did, say, four or five years ago but not as much as I did in the late. Thanks for that, Saris. Uh,
0: Eunice, you'd like to comment on that as
3: well? I think they've dealt with that matter very well. It's something that you said when you opened this question about the developments that happened between 2002 and 2012, what we are still reaping on. I'm, I'm not sure I followed what you meant. Perhaps you can just restate that.
0: So... I think during that time, and especially with that administration, there were various initiatives, especially on the policy coordination front. And I think it was Conrad who alluded to the likes of Bitange in pushing the agenda for tech. And 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 for us, early tech practitioners then, we we had access to government. Bitange used to show up to events. You could push Bitange for something, and they'll say, "Listen, this is what we're doing. This is what government is doing, and everything else." You look at taxation policy. Taxation policy was favorable to tech. Then you had ICT equipment from mobile phones to computers were zero-rated. These mobile phones were zero-rated and I think computers as well were zero-rated then. There were incentives for FDI into infrastructure and, and all this didn't happen in a vacuum. <laughs> there were lots of conversations happening at the highest levels but also at the lowest levels. And I think that is what led to where we are now. But it seems that after 2012, for one reason or another, this whole thing of policy formulation and actually figuring out how to make tech work all disappeared into a vacuum of entrepreneurship and a bunch of other things. But there's no actual policy being thought about.
3: Thank you for clarifying. Considering that I was in government... Between the period you talk about, 2002 and 2012, 2013, government changed. And I remained in government in that period until 2020. I would rather not comment on that subject, but rather chime in on the points that have been raised around collaboration. And only add one more thing. It is true the industry has grown. As a result, it may be a bit more fragmented. But in those days also, we tried very much to support a tech-specific industry body. We tried very hard. Of course, when I speak here, Demo was my PS and really a great mentor, and we did very well. We did very well because it is true, he never missed an opportunity, and it was possible to just see what is happening in government. But the place of a vibrant industry body and sector-specific one, for me, remains. Because the conversations that are difficult to channel through the boardrooms and through specific offices can be channeled through an advocacy approach, a stakeholder engagement approach,ed forums. But somehow that industry-specific sector body did not quite take off, and I don't know why. I don't want to dwell on it. But I still believe we benchmarked a lot with India and India achieved a lot of things through the industry body NASCOM. Here in Kenya, we pushed, it, at one point it was called KITOS, Kenya Information Technology and Outsourcing Body. Uh, those bodies, and if you've looked at what Kenya Association of Manufacturers come, has achieved for the manufacturing sector, is massive. And I have to say, Kepsa is way too big. It's up there. The issues have to be channeled at different levels. And so as a parting shot, I would still advocate for those who believe that there is room for more policy. And actually, I agree, we need to have more discussions about what we can do, how we can collaborate best, how we can support the ecosystem to grow. Those communities are very important. Industry body is very important. Industry body summons government to the table and government comes to the table 100 percent, so long as it is objective and so the issues can be taken back there those ones of the policy supporting local procurement i can say confidently that there are legal clauses there are legal revisions that have happened around government procurement to support the local industry but there has been no equal or commensurate effort To create awareness, to train the industry, to encourage the industry to take advantage. I am not saying it is sufficient. There is still a lot of room to improve. But uh, the conversation has to remain alive because some of the speakers have rightly said the people who sit in the offices to do this procurement, if I'm I'm commenting specifically on the issue of tendering uh, in order to grow companies that can go and cause disruption in other parts of the world from a talent point of view. The people who manage tendering are not IT experts and they don't understand these things. And what helps is the industry to keep forums alive where then these people can be exposed, begin to appreciate concepts, begin to appreciate the opportunities. Ignorance is not an excuse, but the responsibility to keep everybody abreast actually does vest in a reasonable measure with the industry. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Eunice. Uh, Next question for you, Wayne, from Ahmed Ismail. He says the demand for technology professionals with software skills is greatly needed. Is the Kenyan tech market able to observe this new tech company setting up shops here and how it will affect Kenyan firms, and are we seeing skills drainage within this sector?
4: Okay, so I definitely say uh, the demand is quite high, and probably Kenya as a whole might not have the required amount of people that need to satisfy that demand. But one thing that I love about the tech ecosystem right now is that we are increasingly seeing people becoming more specialized in a particular way of doing stuff, and that could mean if someone wants to do web development, they're going specifically for a certain framework based on their interest. We see people moving more into Android or it's in Flutter and or and like recently we have a Python conference, PyCon KE, that's currently happening in USIU today and tomorrow, where we are having people who are enthusiasts in Python because as you probably know, data science is increasingly becoming a skill that is greatly needed in the tech. Um, ecosystem, or even in just companies, because we're now told that data is the new oil. So Python is becoming one of those programming languages that is very, very crucial for data science. So I'd say indefinitely in a couple of years' time, or even months, we're going to see so many people getting these opportunities, whether it's inside the country or even abroad. And you definitely see some people even trying to relocate um, to other countries. And Sometimes it's not really their fault, but it's because there's some perks that these companies give them that I'd say they're irresistible because as a developer, you're not only just looking at um, the money, but you're also looking at the growth. And at the same time, even the money that you're getting, can it really sustain you, for example, in a couple of years' time if, for example, you're doing savings and, and all that? So, yeah, but the market is there, maybe not to the standard that's probably uh, required, but it's quickly picking up pace.
0: Thanks. For the next question, which I'm going to pose to Conrad, it says, it asks, why not lock people into contracts for longer? Some people would appreciate that certainty, and you could train knowing that they won't leave?
1: Thank you for that question. Um, In fact, that is a question we had grappled with at some point. Uh, So uh, part of the training, so of course it's on-the-job training, but we also had a small budget and we paid for some people to finish the university education. We paid for some professional certifications. So So the question now came, what if you have paid for a guy to do his degree or you have paid for them to be satisfied? And after they finish, they leave. So as I said in the opening, I'm a, a farm graduate of the University of Keeping it real. I can write a contract and I can force you to come to the office and I can force you to sit at your desk, but I can't force you to work. So we quickly realize it is not practical to write a contract purporting to bind somebody to work for you for two, three years. It's not really practical. But at the same time, you see, what if you don't make the investment in the people? I think it is always a worthy investment to upskill your talents. How long you love them after that, nobody knows. But I think either way, they are the better off for it if you make the investment. So I know, I don't agree that bonding people to, to commit them to, to, to you for whatever period is practical not practical at all
0: definitely especially in a very fluid market i know they've, they've tried this in the aviation industry kq would train pilots and have have penalties and they'll have to pay back the p- training costs if they leave before the, the prescribed period but what eventually happened is that the market just corrected so you had between emirates and Qatar airways they ended up just munching and buying out the contract so you get recruited into them and they say he will buy out your your contract so at the end of the day anyone with more capital could easily just come in and, and still disrupt. I agree with you that it's not practical. There is a member of the audience, so Mumo, we can give you an opportunity to
5: speak, to comment, or ask a question. Please go ahead. Thank you very much. Loving the discussion, learning a lot. Special shout out to Eunice. She is uh, one of uh, my board members where I work. I just wanted to pick up on some of the comments that Conrad had made, and Eunice plugged into that as well. And one of the things that has been running uh, through my mind is how can we as a country and an ecosystem of, of passionate techies convert this momentum that we are starting to see from people just working for Google or Microsoft or Amazon to actually Kenyans now starting to build the next Googles and Microsofts of this world. And I looked at China a bit in, in some of the research I've been doing. And one of the things that I picked up from the national ethos they have is every generation knows that they exist to propel the next generation to the next level. And the approach to tech was build capacity so that they can be a leader in that space. So I think the question I'd have is what are some of the thoughts that uh, we have around that? And then secondly, for people in the same space as Conrad, where they feel the heat of losing talent, I'm curious to find out how your thoughts around firms like Andela who allow companies to pick talent from other jurisdictions like India, Egypt, Nigeria, etc. Is it a feasible alternative for SMEs in terms of plugging the, the shortfall that we're currently experiencing? Thank you. So first part of the question, Faris, would you like to take a, take a stab?
2: So the first part of the question is basically how we convert the talent that's coming into companies. I'll use an analogy for clustering. It's basically all these engineers who are working for these firms They're not going to work for Microsoft for the next 50 years. So at some point, many of them will get to the point where they're bored or they've seen a challenge, but they've actually learned enough to build their own firm. So there's a book that I recommend for anybody who's starting a company, and it's Founders' Dilemmas. Founders' Dilemmas has found that founders in the late 30s, early 40s tend to have the highest rate of return. And it's simply because they've got the experience built the social capital required to build big businesses. So the exposure that these firm's bring is actually a good thing. And I'll use another analogy. When you look at banking, if you want to make money in banking, you're either going to be in London, you're going to be in New York, you're going to be in Hong Kong, Tokyo. You're going to be in an economic cluster, a place where there are multiple banks. There's a lot of capital and you can cut your teeth without too much risk. You can learn how to develop high quality software at Microsoft. You bungle a couple of things. There's somebody else who's going to fix it for you. So in the long run, this exposure we are giving to people working for all firms, both local and international, is how we become a tech uh, hub. So eventually, you, know, you look at China, you look at Taiwan, China was the outsourcing capital of the world. Today, they are doing a lot of production. India was part of the outsourcing capital. Today, Jaguar Land Rover is an Indian company. Volvo is a Chinese company. So Volvo is owned by a Chinese company. JLR is owned by Tata. These are the first steps. So it's akin to a baby. You learn how to crawl. Then you learn how to walk. Then eventually you can run a marathon. So it's not like born knowing how to run. He took the necessary steps to get there. And there's this aphorism that's used in the mythical man-month, the a month we are taking the necessary steps to be able to build these firms. And I think we'll be the better for it in the long run.
0: Thanks, Faris. Uh, Conrad, second part of the question, which is the Andela effect, especially on SMEs and smaller firms. Is it practical? Is it feasible? And this pulling of talent from you know different parts of the world, can it kind of just be di- directed into one
1: marketplace or some significant player, or should this the market sort of... Thing? Just before I go- get into that, like I said before, it, the more these guys come here, the better... They will learn from each other, experience, and so on and so forth. But guess what? If we don't solve this problem, or at least find a way around it, those guys, they will leave Microsoft and Amazon and whatever and start their own companies, and they will promptly run into this problem where they know what they want to do, but they're unable to execute. So this is something that we we, we need to address at some point rather than kick it down the road. With regards to the question of talent and what Andela is doing, like I said, keeping it real, I've been forced to consider this as an option. So given the fact that I I, 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 I am unable to execute by virtue of, I, I can't retain the team for the, the, the sort of expertise I need to execute. So now I'm exposed in terms of risk. A quick solution is I can go to Bulgaria or any of these places and completely outsource my development therefore now this problem i'm having now will become somebody else's problem our our engagement is here are the specifications here is the timelines here's what i want you to do and here's the money so i'll be insulated from this problem so now two three years ago this was never an option but it is now i mean it is what it is i need to be able to put bread on the table so this is an option i'm forced to consider and have proposals as we speak in my inbox But I really don't want to go down this road because number one, my personal ethos is I'm a person of build Kenya and doing this is like copying out. And secondly, if I do this successfully and all those ideas I have will be executed by somebody else. So that expertise, that know-how, that experience will be in Bulgaria or India or wherever and it will not be here. That money I will have spent will not be here. So I really don't want to go down that route But the very fact that Andela exists, again, speaks to the fact that this is a very common problem, that there's a whole industry that you can build a company around recruiting talent and then seconding it to uh, uh, where it is needed. Now, the long-term effect of that is something you need to think about. If our ethos is to have, as the, was it Momo, who was saying we need more local companies to become juggernauts. So what is the quickest way to, to get us there in terms of growth and scaling? And such outfits speak to a problem that is continuously there that we need to address. So it is what it is so we are forced to consider such things but i I would really not like to take this route and i would be willing to work with the ecosystem with government to you know find a way of not having to take that because if we all took that route uh, what what, what would that mean for our ecosystem yeah i think that's about it
0: thanks uh conrad there's a question you will pose it to eunice He he posed it to startup founders, but I think Unis, you you've worked in the community at several levels, and you sit on board of several startups. And he says, in the U.S., one big incentive, amongst others, to attract talent is giving away equity, with the hope of a successful IPO. Is this something that's common? here or some version of that. So this is kind of going into ESOPs or options for early employees and and whatnot as part of the compensation package. That is
3: a really good question, given where we are at as a country on the learning curve. And the short answer to that question is, we have quite a bit of learning to go through. Is it happening today? If it is, the motivations are not clear. I don't think it is happening at a scale we can begin to talk about yet. When you compare us and the U.S., you have to allow some time for a little bit long learning. The U.S. has many years of learning and experience, and they have become comfortable to fail. They have become comfortable to take big risks. Unfortunately, they have also, part of that experience that they have is very diverse. And they have been said to work out artificial valuing of companies through several series of fundraising to be able to raise the value of that company and take equity. Any investor who takes equity in a company will likely be looking at the possibility of one day cashing out through an IPO process. Now, for any startup to really get to that level, it has a lot of uh, levels to go through. One of the basic problems that startups face in Kenya today is one of just being properly documented, ready for even your regular private equity or angel investor to be able to look at it and really appreciate it because they are mostly very, very busy innovating and making product and my experience has been that because they are striking a very delicate balance between limited resources surviving and keeping on innovating and running a business so that it can get investors in they end up not really documenting although they have all the information in place but some of them find it hard to present it in a fully packaged manner and they miss opportunities to even benefit from those artificial rounds of uh, fundraising to raise the value of a company so that then if you have a bit of equity and uh, that company finally gets to a point of an IPO, then you cash in uh, very, very well. So in short, there are very few far apart successful stories. We do need to create many more case studies of that nature. And the best way to create those case studies is to have many more companies, many more startups uh, scaling up, commercializing, and they are coming up, but the numbers have not reached that critical mass where then uh, the capital markets begins to play their role. I must comment then Nairobi Securities Exchange because they are really, really responsive. And they have created a segment in the GEMS. This brings the memories of our late President Kibaki because the GEMS segment came as part of the Vision 2030, many things that were being done then. And the Nairobi Securities Exchange has kept that alive and has gradually been helping startups to fill in the gaps about the requirements of being able to list and as part of this question, I would suggest that startups pay attention to how they document, pay attention to what the NSC is doing, pay attention to all the education that is also being done by players in the capital markets, so that as they grow from a revenue point of view, from a balance sheet point of view, they can also grow and meet the requirements of such things as Giving equity without being taken advantage of. I I really sometimes get uh, worried because even when investors have come, they get equity at not very well calculated value. They get so much equity for very little. And the innovators, because they are really in need of a lot of capital to survive and develop their products to the next level, end up with little. So that continuous education is very important and the best way to enable that is again back to the conversation about collaboration, not just with the universities, but also with players in the financial markets to be able to create that knowledge about how to value, about how to package the companies so that then eventually it can get to a stage uh, where we can have an IPO. But there's a lot of room and a lot of opportunity for all of us in the ecosystem to work, to grow companies that they can meet the requirements of uh, a possible IPO. It's what I can say for now, it's a whole big discussion on its own.
4: Thanks
0: for that, Eunice. And there also have been a couple of questions that we haven't answered, and we'll have to organize a session for that, especially on the compensation structure and remuneration for local talent. We've run out of time. We've actually overextended. We usually end on the hour. So before we close the session, I'd like to call on all speakers to give us their closing comment and thoughts. And granted that we're in a political year and I'm a big stickler for civic uh, engagement, especially here at mwango uh, Capital and pushing that agenda for civic engagement. It's, it's a year of all political charades. As we close and all panelists are giving their closing comments, if you could also comment on what we would like the, the next administration to look into. Granted that there's going to be a new administration, whichever side wins, and granted that there'll be new legislators coming in. What would we like them to do for us for the industry so we can start with faris
2: yeah so i'll i'll go back to my basic brass text when it comes to um this so last comments industry is doing well we are growing i'll recommend another book the mystery of capital by hannah de sotopola the next administration should basically focus on rule of law dispute resolution in kenya is very problematic takes too long and we are losing investment opportunities because of that so it has been found that the more efficient your judiciary and the better you are at dispute resolution the better your economy is that's why small economies comparatively small countries rather like hong kong or singapore have very high economic output because you can trust people will do what they say and you know you can enforce the contract So I'd I'd, I'd just stick it to that, the basics. Fix the judiciary, fix the police force. These infrastructure vendors
4: will not help anyone in the long run. It's the ability to collaborate as a society that will make a big difference. First, I'd like to say thank you for giving me this opportunity to be amongst this panel. Honestly, I've learned a lot from policymaking to how startups coping with the current talent shortage or something like that. But I think one thing that I'd like to implore when it comes to all this is always, always have a sit down with all stakeholders. And by that, I mean, if you can, at some point, if you're a startup founder or an employer, probably try and you know attend some of these tech events and just probably take a backbench or something. Sit at the back and just observe and ask questions, for example, for some of these individuals. Ask them what do they really need when it comes to being employed in the tech sector you'd actually find out that there's so much that probably you might not know and that's really really okay and that is I think one of the ways to solve some of the problems you're currently facing and in terms of our policy making it still boils down to having everyone sit at the table and really discuss this because for example Having to make decisions in the boardroom without having someone who is out there, someone who's on the ground, then it's beca- it becomes really, really problematic. And you'll find things like brain drain happening. And it's really, really important to have everyone at the table for this. Yeah.
3: A very, very interesting question. I would be saying that we are in time for um, a brand new, if you like, quote unquote, a brand new administration every new administration requires ramping up because they come completely drunk and soaked with the campaign sort of mentality, uh, a lot of which may just be campaign and not real things that they will do. And therefore, the industry owes it to itself to ramp that administration up with what needs doing and the best way to do that is to present a structured agenda, a wish list in a structured manner. So, if there was a way that can be done, and I hear my fellow panelists who have been fantastic suggesting that we must absolutely engage the stakeholders together, and, and that is the best way to create that agenda and push it because it is structured, it's very difficult to say no to. The other thing that hopefully I would wish that is fixed. Is whatever the industry to take advantage of the pieces of law that have been amended to allow the government to procure from our own companies, local companies, because this is a very big deal in every country. The government is always the biggest consumer of any service, any product. It's the biggest buyer. So if the government can find a way of activating these clauses of law and the industry can actively be assisted to start taking advantage and some of the issues are those to address the judiciary disputes and all those things, then we would be in a good place. Finally, we are always going to be the leaders that we elect. And that is another indirect but most powerful way of really making sure that the industry gets the support it requires. Or we have to start by electing the leaders we feel can do what we need done. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed and conversing with people I worked with in the industry before. That is just amazing. Awesome. Thank you.
1: Thanks. In terms of reading, there's a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Horowitz, fantastic reads. And there's a book called Business Adventures by John Brooks that I highly recommend. In terms of the the next step, uh, what should the government do? I think, as far as as I aptly said, governments should just stick to its core mandate to provide an enabling environment, whether it's the executive or the judiciary or the legislature. Provide an enabling environment and leave the rest to us. In terms of the growth for us going forward, I think providing 5,000 developers for Cisco or for Microsoft or whoever is a, is a pretty short-term objective. That should not be our vision. Our vision should be how, how do we produce the next Cisco and the next Microsoft and the next Amazon from Kenya? That really should be where it's at. What can we do to create an, an environment and build the capacity and the skills to have a vibrant ICT industry that you can export, and not just from development, but across all the disciplines, whether it's software development, whether it's analysis, whether it's design, networking, databases, what will it take for us to catapult this country to to the next level in terms of ICT? That is where I think we should be spending our waking hours as as citizens and as government, figuring that out, because once we do it, I think the the world is our oyster.
0: Thanks, Conrad, and Thank you, all speakers, for this very wonderful discussion on yet another Friday evening. And thank you very much to the audience uh, for tuning in on a late Friday evening, but attentively listening to what we had to offer and our panelists. And without further ado, I'd like to wish everyone uh, a very good night.